Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me is Hilary Falb Kalisman. Professor Kalisman is an assistant professor of history at University of Colorado Boulder, as well as the endowed professor of Israel-Palestine Studies in its Jewish Studies program. Her new book, Teachers as State Builders, Education and the Making of the Modern Middle East was published by Princeton University Press in 2022, and we will be discussing it today. So I'd like to welcome you to the program, and I'd like you to tell a little bit about yourself and uh, how you became interested in Middle East studies, how you became interested in the topic of education, and uh, what led you to write this book. Well, I've been interested in the history of education for a really long time, um, particularly formal education. So like education that takes place in schools or other institutions of learning. Um, And what I always found so interesting is these institutions are sites where people, you know, sort of really articulate their ideals for what they think a society is supposed to be. Right. So you could have like a government, you can have a particular, you know, like a missionary organization and a school is kind of where they articulate what kind of a future they think their students should have. That said, it's also a place where these, you know, sort of ideals meet the practical realities of actual children, parents, attendance, availability of supplies, etc. So that's something I've been kind of looking at in various capacities, actually, since I was an undergrad, if not before. Um, In terms of why focus on the Middle East, honestly, my first year of college was 9-11, so the number, right, like the number of students in our Arabic program tripled overnight. Um, and I, w- I was part of this kind of small wave of students who were trying to figure out what was going on in the world and had suddenly become really, really aware of their ignorance. So I started doing Middle East studies as an undergrad. Then I was actually really interested in literature. Um, but then I sort of decided that it would make more sense to be a historian And I had all these ideas about what I would want to learn in graduate school from like education as a means of social mobility, looking at Geniza documents um, to schooling women in journalism in Palestine. Uh, But when I actually got to graduate school, I started out looking at these amazing teachers personnel files uh, from the Mandate for Palestine. And when I was looking at these documents, my initial questions were kind of like, okay, so what were Palestinian educators like as teachers? What could I say about their relationship to the mandate government? But what I found out is that so many of these teachers had worked or studied abroad. Studied abroad. So I also had gotten really dissatisfied with the literature on kind of the topic of education in the Middle East because so much of it saw education during this time period, right? So like the interwar period as just a, you know, kind of like a place where people became nationalist. Um, And usually within the territories of their educational systems, the people I was looking at didn't really fit the borders of the governments they worked for. 
their nationalisms and their politics didn't really fit those borders either. And they also, they're people. They're not just like ideological conduits sort of spewing ideologies. Um, So this meant I needed to take a step back and kind of like physically follow these teachers in order to get a sense of, okay, so what are they actually doing? What are their politics? You know, where do they go? And then what what are their legacies? Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So then, as you say, you're mostly focused on the interwar period, but you also start by looking at the previous years, and you ultimately look at the years after. So maybe we can talk a little about the education system that existed in the last few years of the Ottoman Empire, how it functioned, and how it shaped the generation of people, the generation of teachers that you're looking at through most of the book. Well, like on a very practical level, the first generation of teachers I study in the book, they got their educations during the late Ottoman era. So, right, like the type of schooling they had, the amount of schooling, where they went to school, and to some degree, their expectations as to how education was supposed to function came from the Ottoman period. Um <clears throat> But the education available to these teachers that are going to start working in the mandates was, as I talk about in the book, really a bit of a patchwork. So in the 19th century, there's this big rise in government education. You start to see Ottoman state schools in the provinces, especially provincial cities like Baghdad and Beirut, and then gradually spreading to smaller urban areas. Like by kind of the end of the 19th century, there were supposed to be elementary schools sponsored by the Ottoman government in every Ottoman village. There were also lots of new institutions of higher learning, especially in Istanbul. So going to these schools also kind of implied that you are going to become part of the state later, right? So particularly if you went to a secondary or a rishtiya school, these are places where kind of like students were hoping that once they graduated from this school, they would work for the government as bureaucrats, civil servants, and maybe even also as educators. But one of the things to keep in mind, right, is that these state schools, even though they're going to be increasingly available, aren't that widely available. So most of the educators I look at had to make do with other options. So one of the main ones is religious schooling. So schools attached to mosques, churches, even synagogues. And these tended to fill gaps in the lowest levels of education. Um, Although some of the teachers, actually, they go to Al-Azhar in Egypt for like top level Sunni Islamic training. So you have those schools. Then you also have missionary schools, national schools founded by locals, and even sort of Jewish institutions that were attended by Ottomans of all different religions looking for education. Um, So for female students, the educational landscape is different. There are even like fewer government girls schools than for boys. Education in most cases is single sex with some exceptions, which means girls often will receive tutoring or they're traveled to live with a relative in order to get more education. Um, So there are a few legacies of this period that are really important for the teachers that I look at in the rest of the book. One of them is this travel. The assumption is if you want to get an education generally past a very elementary level, you have to be in or go to an urban area. Where students go to changes during the mandate period, Istanbul stops being so much of a hub, whereas Beirut tends to take its place. But the going somewhere to get an education and also to work in education continues. 
As I said, government schools during the Ottoman period tend to mean a job with the government. You would learn the language of the government, the state curricula, and then the assumption was the state would give you a job. This is something that teachers, students, and parents expected. So this is something that people expect into the mandate period. The idea was, well, okay, if you went to a state school, there should be some sort of government job available to you, or at least a white-collar equivalent. Um, And then the final aspect of Ottoman education, I think, is really important for understanding the teachers of the mandate era is this patchwork quality. This means teachers going in to sort of work for the mandate governments have really, really eclectic educations. They could be self-taught, they could be clerics, they could have gone to the Sorbonne. What this means is during like the first decade, teaching can't really be standardized because of both this sort of like incredibly varied backgrounds, experiences, and also, as I'll, you know, I'll talk about later, like a, you know, kind of a lack of funding and interest in standardizing as well. But I'm just curious, um, you talk a little bit about what, what was the backgrounds of these students? Is um, being a teacher at this point a way of... Um... Is it causing social mobility, as you talked about them getting jobs working for the state, or are they already the sort of people who would be working in the, for the state regardless of whether they're teachers or coming at some other way into the state employment? I would say most of the time it's the latter. Most of the time it is somebody who's elite from an elite family who works briefly in education and then will use it as a stepping stone to work for, you know, sort of the Ottoman government and kind of, or the mandate governments in a more prestigious, better paid capacity. But, it, but it's certainly not universal. Like you do have growing numbers of people um, <clears throat> who go to, you know, sort of their local government elementary school and then are maybe able to get to a secondary school as well. And that does open up new possibilities. Um, and this is something people, you know, sort of, In their memoirs of this period, people do really talk about how, you know, sort of exciting this period is also in terms of education. But again, I would say most of the time it does tend to be like, okay, you know, you're from an elite family, you're going to get sort of education, but then maybe your desire to be a governor of this province isn't working out right now. So you teach for two years and then you get to be a governor. I see. Okay. Well, okay, so let's let's like change gears to the arrival of the British and the creation of the mandate system. So you talk about how the British had been creating education systems, having education policies in regions other than the Middle East before they arrived there. So maybe we can talk about how the British policies in the Middle East departed from or resembled some of their education policies elsewhere in India or Egypt before coming to Iraq and Palestine. Um, Yeah, if we can talk about that uh, during the first decade or so of British rule, how did they create their system? How does it uh, change what their previous policies had been? Uh, Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Great. Well, one of the interesting things is that legally the British don't change very much. Right. They actually leave like the Ottoman educational laws in place when they get there. Um, And this is part of, you know, sort of British policy of kind of maintaining the status quo. Um, And it's also kind of like a general, you know, sort of geopolitical policy when you're conquer a new area. Right. Like there are Hague conventions about how you're kind of supposed to maintain 
the general laws of the place you're invading as well. Um, so what this means is for like over the first decade, Ottoman educational laws are in place. There are some changes that they make. So shifts in curricula, they tend to be focused on language. Um, so there's no more Ottoman Turkish. Instead, you have English instead as a second language and Arabic becomes the main language in schools. Although in areas in Iraq, you can have Kurdish and even Turkish if that's the main language the population speaks. Now, in terms of British policies, they tend to have similar ones kind of wherever they go. And the main things they care about, you know, sort of particularly at this kind of later stage of British imperialism is saving money and preventing rebellions, which are also expensive. Um, and basically, they thought the best way of doing this is dividing up education into two types, elementary education in the vernacular for the majority. And the idea here is, okay, like the majority of people you're governing would be sort of a lower class group of farmers, workers, and mothers who would be literate, but would be happy with their place in society. Then there would also be a limited number of English-speaking bureaucrats that would be employed in government service, basically as functionaries. And it's much cheaper to hire locals rather than British people or even people from other British-dominated areas. Um, and so this is kind of the, the general policy the British use. But I would say, like, over time, their focus on sort of creating that limited group of English-speaking elites gets less and less. So, right, like in India, they actually really make a go of trying to teach people English, trying to, you know, sort of impart what they feel are kind of like British civilizational ideals. By the time they get to the mandates, they think this was a terrible policy. Um, also, literally right as they're sort of consolidating their hold over the mandates and as they're going to get awarded, there are protests in Egypt, which is also under British control, led by students, and British officials, a lot of whom were coming from work in Egypt to go work in the mandates, thought that their educational policy, you know, sort of was a failure, right? Like um, Humphrey Bowman, this director of education briefly in Iraq and then for a longer time in Palestine, talks about it as a Frankenstein monster. That basically their educational policies educated too many people in English and in this sort of language of nationalism, and that then they were discontented and rebellious. So the idea is once you get to these new mandates, basically the biggest thing to avoid is an overeducated unemployed who would use their English to talk about nationalism and to rebel. Now, in, in reality, this never materializes during the mandate era because there's so little education in general, right? Like the desire to save money, um, also to spend as little as possible on schooling, right? The mandates are supposed to be um, economically self-sufficient, like the British tax taxpayer isn't supposed to pay for the mandates. So this means there's very little money for education. And what education there is, is in this kind of two two tiered policy. One of the weird kind of side effects that takes place is that it actually ends up giving teachers a certain amount of leeway and power. There are not very many teachers, you know, I mean, particularly in Transjordan, there are sort of like less than 200 public school teachers over the whole mandate era. And 
right? What this means is teaching gets kind of preserved as kind of elite, an elite profession, but also one that allows teachers a certain amount of flexibility because there are so few replacements. And so I'm just curious, as, as you're describing this, mostly you're focusing on schools that are run, overseen by the British authorities. But are there also, are private schools, missionary schools, Zionist schools, are they growing in number? Are the teachers growing in number there while what you're writing about is happening? Or are those declining while what you're writing about is happening? I'm just curious. So the, you know, the Zionist schools and the mandate for Palestine are growing to a huge degree. With missionary institutions, you do also see, um, but again, it kind of depends on the area. Um, think Things are different in Iraq than they are in like Palestine, Transjordan, but you do see sort of an increase in those over time. And this is also something where it, it fits kind of in with these British policies of saving money. Um, so they're actually happy to have other institutions kind of pick up the slack in fulfilling educational demand. Um, <clears throat> so one of the systems they would employ is like a grant in aid. So if a religious institution would accept kind of like a certain degree of British oversight, it's mainly, it's actually mainly focused on hygiene, like how clean the school is. Um, then they can apply for like a grant and aid and get sort of a smaller amount of funding from the British government to keep the school functioning. So the British kind of get like another school without um, having to pay the full amount. Um, that said, there are very different degrees of control between kind of the government schools and missionary or national schools. Um, one of the reasons for this is actually the League of Nations um, <clears throat> in the mandate charters says that each community, each religious community, has to be allowed to maintain schools for that community. So what this means for the Zionist schools is that they're actually defined as sort of Jewish institutions. And so they get kind of relative autonomy. That said, they are not particularly happy about getting less funding than Palestinian Arab government schools, but they don't want oversight over their curricula. Um, and that kind of goes back and forth. But no, like these schools are also increasing. And again, certain ones kind of shift in importance during this period. Um, as I talk a lot about in the book, like the American University of Beirut, which is formerly the Syrian Protestant College, really becomes a hub of education. Uh, and it tends to be where the British mandate government sends scholarship students because it's kind of the closest, cheapest place to learn English at a college level. And then you can have teachers come back, whereas sending them to the United States or Britain itself is much more costly. So it kind of takes on a new life during this period. In Iraq, on the other hand, um, because the British have less control over the educational system after, particularly after 1923, and then again, there's a big drop after 1932. It means that you do actually kind of have a reduction in sort of the autonomy of foreign schools um, because the Iraqi government, because it has more independence, is much more interested in regulating these foreign schools and actually sort of forcing them to teach the same curricula that the Iraqi government schools are teaching. I see that. Okay, that is interesting. Yeah, and that's that's very helpful for getting a sense of how these different 
education institutions relate to each other, fit together. So let's turn to the teachers themselves. So in the book, you're very interested in the habitus of these teachers, which is to say the commonalities in their experience and also the the variability and uncertainty that are particular to their lives. Maybe you can speak a bit to this. So what experiences uh, shaped these teachers and uh, what areas did they find themselves having to improvise because of their particular habitus or particular experiences, teachers? Part of what I argue is there are really a few main factors shaping teachers' experiences here, especially in the 1920s. One of these is travel. Another is educator scarcity. And another one is that lack of interest in funding put towards education on the part of the mandate governments. As we talked about, during the Ottoman period, you don't have that many schools available. So the assumption is that you will travel to an urban area if you're going to kind of go past elementary school most of the time or that you already live in one. You see this in the Mandate era, again, because the British don't really open that many schools. And so there's this expectation that, okay, if you're going to go to a secondary school, you're probably going to one of the kind of biggest cities in your mandate. If you're going to get a post-secondary education, you are going abroad. So particularly at the American University of Beirut, then you have people meeting each other from all over the region, all over the world, sharing the particular experience of going to Beirut and studying as a young person during the interwar era, and then returning to their own countries or traveling most particularly to Iraq, but also to Jordan, to Transjordan at this time. What this means is that, right, like teachers tend to be, tend to be well-traveled. And again, it's not it's not like any of these governments or policymakers are setting out to make their educators cosmopolitan. It's just literally because they don't have universities yet. And the British government is very uninterested in setting up universities. Um, now, in the Mandate for Palestine, you do have Hebrew University and the Technion, but both of these end up teaching in Hebrew, and they're not really accessible to the Arab population at this time period. So what you see, right, is, you know, this kind of surprisingly typical path would be you're born in Palestine, you end up at the American University of Beirut, you teach in Iraq for a few years, you come back to Palestine, you end up kicked out in 1948, and you work in Jordan as a bureaucrat or even a minister. And this kind of is set up by all of this travel during the interwar period. This means also that teachers tend to have ideologies and politics that reflect the experience of travel and who they see their peers are. They tend to participate in pan-Arabism or communism, which they might learn at school. For example, I talk about Fadil al-Jamali. He's an educator who later becomes a politician and a very briefly prime minister in Iraq. And he remembers kind of how he traveled to the American University of Beirut as a student, and then he would go see his, you know, his classmates or other AUB alumni in all of these places. And for him, it makes Pan-Arabism this really kind of lived, visceral experience. He travels around the region, he talks to people, they have shared experiences. This gets incorporated into his politics. Now, one of the other factors I think was really important for these teachers is the fact that there were so few of them. 
it's really, really hard to find replacements for teachers because there are so few people in the region who are literate to say nothing of a post-secondary school degree. Particularly in the 1920s, teachers can get away with a particular level of improvising in the classroom. Now, unsurprisingly, a lot of this improvising is more personal or professional, right? So refusing to teach the syllabus because it seems too onerous, refusing to stop performing marriages on the side, or just, you know, not doing a very good job as a teacher and not getting fired for it. You also see teachers lobbying for better salaries, which they tend not to get, or being transferred to a place they would prefer, which is more likely. What this means is that teaching is really variable. It really depends on the individual, which makes it kind of, in a certain sense, not very professionalized. As I mentioned, right, the backgrounds of teachers are different, and they can really get away with a lot in the first years of the mandate governments. These improvisations could also be more overtly political, you know, sort of interfering in local elections, even leading anti-mandate protests. Now, these actions tend to result in punishments, but these punishments tend to be punitive transfers. So let's say, you know, you have a job in a more urban area, you could get transferred to a more rural one, which, which is a physical hardship. And a lot of these teachers really hated it. But you're not fired in part because there's very, very few people who can replace teachers, especially at the secondary school level. And if I could just ask a question about these um, the, the teacher training schools that many of them are going to, uh, how did like how did women and men experience these differently? Was there a different ideal male teacher or ideal female teacher that these schools were trying to create, or was it similar the expectations for teachers that were being taught at these institutions? I would say one of the things I ran into is teaching really isn't isn't feminized as a profession, which is which is very different from like the kind of like US or European or even the experience in the Yeshuv, um, the uh, Jewish community in Mandate Palestine. What this means is kind of like the default teacher is a man, right? So the assumption is when you, you know, you go to a teacher's college and you, and right as I talked about, this is kind of, this is kind of marking you off as a particular kind of educated elite because you're getting to this like high school, post high school level. And when, you know, when you get there, you're essentially becoming a kind of an elite. You are learning a particular curricula that you're going to teach, um, And, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is that, like, a lot of the expectations for what teachers are supposed to do are pretty excessive, right? Like, they're supposed to, you know, run the school garden. They're also supposed to be able to um, administer, like, medical treatments, right? They're supposed to count all of their students. But that said, right, like, there is this assumption that it's kind of like, an elite male profession. And um, one of the institutions I talk about a lot in the book is the Arab College of Jerusalem, which is a teacher training institution, but it's also this really extraordinary place um, where it's admissions policies. It, it basically, it takes like the top two students from every boys school in the mandate for Palestine Um, whether it's a village school, whether the student is poor or not. So it ends up being this institution that's very focused on meritocracy. 
and it mainly produces teachers, but it also produces intellectuals, professors, you know, this kind of, because the students who go there, you know, tend to really excel in their scholastics. So it kind of acts as this like means of social mobility. For female teachers, there's a bit more of a kind of physical disjuncture between who they are and what they're, you know, kind of like able to do versus what the teaching profession expects from them. I talked a lot about how travel is this characteristic experience for teachers. That is not a particularly easy thing to do as a woman by oneself in the region during the interwar period. And you are not supposed to be married and be a teacher. In Palestine and Jordan, that's actually forbidden. In Iraq, it's not technically forbidden, but that's the practice. Because the assumption is at some point, you're supposed to be a mother. And then you should be devoting your life to being a mom. Which meant also these female teachers were technically supposed to teach people to be better mothers even if they were not mothers themselves and were often, you know, sort of single women who traveled hundreds of miles in order to receive their education. So for them, and, and they do kind of talk about how difficult this was, right? Like a lot of, you know, the teacher's personnel files, like people's memoirs talk about how, you know, they really needed like a male relative in particular that they could live with who would accompany them to be able to have a teaching job, um, like a Gertrude Nassar, who's one of who's the headmistress of the Akko Girls School in Palestine for many years, she decides to teach there in part because they're going to hire her sister too, and then they can live together. So it kind of makes it physically possible for them to teach. And again, right, like teaching is this elite profession. So when women join it, they're also taking on this role of kind of educated, politically active elite. And then they have to kind of negotiate what their gender means in this context. When is it useful for them? When is it not? Now, you've, you mentioned already that, uh, for example, Iraq becomes independent in 1932. And you've talked a bit about teachers even leading protests sometimes. But when we get into the 1930s, politics in the in the British mandate and the larger British sphere of influence, it becomes much more contentious. So can you talk about some of the different ways that teachers were involved and uh, maybe some of the different uh, things that conditioned whether a teacher was involved or how they were involved in the politics of 1930s into the 1940s? In the 1930s, Right. So Iraq gets independence, you know, kind of formal independence in 1932, even if it's an, appendant, an independence conditioned by treaties with Britain. Uh, <clears throat> what you see then, though, is Iraq starts really importing teachers from the surrounding areas because it has the kind of the funding to do so, because there's less British control over the amount of funding they can spend on education. And they also start advancing a pan-Arab ideology that over the course of the 1930s gets more and more militant. And in Iraqi politics, this is accompanied by kind of a series of coups, which helps the military enter politics. And then you see in education, you get these like really military style scouting movements. So basically in the 1930s, Iraq is kind of at the forefront of both importing teachers from the region and putting forward a pan-Arab ideology that is then taught by these teachers who are coming from Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon in particular. 
in the mandate for Palestine, in the 1930s, you have rising Jewish immigration due to Nazism. And this has both like economic and political fallout. You know, this is kind of exacerbated by the global Great Depression. And you have this huge revolt from 1936 to 1939. Now, in Palestine during this period, you have, you know, sort of the whole country is you know, it, it basically comes to kind of a standstill as you have a grassroots armed movement trying to, you know, sort of trying to get rid of sort of the British and also Zionism. So what do these kind of like political upheavals mean for educators? So right, as we, you know, as I talked about a little bit, educators tend to be you know, sort of at the cutting edge of the ideologies people are talking about in this period. They're reading about them, they're teaching about them, and in certain times and spaces, they're protesting. Unsurprisingly, teachers tend to be people who talk a lot about nationalism rather than really seeking to overthrow the governments themselves, in part because they work for them, (laughs) right? So in Transjordan, you have secondary school teachers. Um, in the book, I talk about Suleiman al-Nabulsi. He's going to be a prime minister later, trying to express solidarity with pan-Arabism, anti-imperialism, and anti-Zionism. Um, so al-Nabulsi, he's teaching at the secondary school in Karak in Transjordan, and he tries to get a protest against the Balfour Declaration. And this was this 1917 declaration which recognized British support for a Jewish national home in Palestine that gets incorporated into the mandate. So basically, he wants to protest it. He kind of wants to be in like solidarity with Palestinians. And he's, you know, sort of trying to practice the kind of pan-Arabism that he's learned about and that he believes in. But he kind of he kind of runs into problems because the people who join the protest, according to his former student, don't really seem to understand the implications. Right. Like he's saying down with Balfour. And according to this former student, he thinks it's down with Krikor, who is like a local, you know, sort of like shopkeeper. But, you know, like Suleiman, right, is trying to get together a protest and express his solidarity with this pan-Arab ideal that's against imperialism and Zionism. But he stays working for the government and he's going to continue to work for it into the 1950s. So other ways teachers participate in politics are through secret political societies. Often these are made through like school day connections. Um, As I mentioned, right, there are very few secondary schools in the mandates and these tend to be in kind of like the biggest city in each mandate. What this means is not just every person who is a teacher who has a secondary school education tends to go to these same schools, but also anybody who is going to work as a politician later also goes to these schools. So you could, you know, like at the teacher's college in Baghdad, you could meet somebody who then goes on to be a politician, even if you're a teacher, and then you two sort of remember each other and you can join a secret club together. That said, these groups often try to influence other elites to emphasize, you know, sort of a pan-Arab nationalism. Some of them are more focused on communism, particularly in Iraq. But again, they're not, they're not really trying to get rid of the government altogether. They're kind of trying to change their characters. Um, and this is, this is really stark in Palestine, 
as I mentioned, right, the whole country is kind of in this huge state of upheaval. And initially, all of the schools close in solidarity with the general strike. Over time, the schools reopen and teachers try their best to get to work. And it's really not safe or easy to do this. Like the Gertrude Nassar, who I talk about, is accidentally shot by a British soldier when she's trying to, like, go visit her neighbors. But she's still trying to work as a teacher. So educators keep trying to kind of keep their jobs to keep kids in school. And most teachers also aren't really arrested or punished during the revolt because the government also doesn't want schools to stop functioning. And the population as a whole doesn't necessarily want to either, right? Like it's very hard to contemplate the possibility of children not going to school for three years which means that teachers can kind of talk about nationalism, they can talk about anti-imperialism, they talk about Palestinian pan-Arab nationalism, but they keep working for the government. What this also means, though, is other groups, those not implied by the government, are the ones who tend to pick up weapons, right? So in Palestine, it tends to be, you know, sort of peasants who have been, like, you know, basically, like, thrown off their land by new kind of land purchases by like particularly like Zionist policies in purchasing land. And they have, you know, sort of, they have a different type of grievance against the government, even if teachers are kind of in support of them. Now in terms of gender and politics, as I mentioned, right, like female teachers tend to use ideals of femininity when they're useful to them, but to downplay their gender when it isn't. Um, so one of the teachers I talk about, Bahia Farajala, she's a teacher in the Women's Teachers College in Iraq, and she's actually lived most of her life in Egypt. She writes an article where she talks about Arab education that's really, you know, sort of it's emphasizing an Arab civilization and a pan-Arab nationalism that has this glorious past and will have a glorious future. When she does this, she doesn't really talk very much about women, right? She casts herself as just an excerpt, an expert. So she takes on, to a certain degree, the masculine persona of an educator who's an elite, who's an intellectual, and who's an expert in pedagogy. And she talks about all sorts, you know, she talks about like Ibn Khaldun. She also talks about kind of more like global figures in pedagogy. But she doesn't talk specifically about girls or women. That said, right, one of the other things that's kind of interesting, right, is like young female teachers had the option of joining kind of women's political organizations, which tended to experience less government repression than teachers' organizations did. So at certain points, like, you know, sort of they had more leeway to protest, to get involved in politics as women rather than as teachers. I want to, I want to turn to the in, era of independence, but I'm just curious, it, it occurs to me, would you, would you argue then that pr- these teachers are primarily promoting a uh, pan-Arab sort of nationalism, or are there alternative uh, visions of nationalism to uh, sta- you know, state-centered na- nationalism, Iraqi nationalism, for example, that some teachers are more interested in. How do you you see that in this time period, 1930s, 1940s? One of the things that I think it's really important to keep in mind is that these ideologies in this time period are really fluid, 
Um, and part of it has to do with the fact that governments, you know, sort of with the possible exception of Iraq, can't really implement these ideologies, right? Like, again, they're kind of controlled by the British directly or indirectly. And so they have much less, you know, sort of of an ability to implement a particularly kind of like state-centered nationalism or pan-Arabism. So what this means is you, you know, you don't have to really sort of like choose or codify these political positions, like exclusive of other ones. So you could have like an Iraqi nationalism that is very much pan-Arab, but is really focused on how important Iraq is. And this isn't a problem in this interwar time period. And you have lots of other teachers, again, like particularly in Iraq, who are really interested in communism, who are trying to get more organized and who end up like particularly by the 1940s, like the Communist Party ends up being the best organized one in this area. And right, like clearly like Palestinians have a very, you know, sort of different and harsher experience of imperialism living in the mandate for Palestine because of the mandate structure, because of this greatest greater level of British control, um, which means that you have sort of like a specific Palestinian experience that also leads to kind of like a particular Palestinian nationalism. For most of the people I look at, and again, particularly the ones who go to the American University of Beirut, particularly the ones who travel in other areas, pan-Arabism is the ideology they advocate the most, but it's one that clearly includes the countries in which they live. I see. Well, okay. In that case, then let's turn to these countries. So as states like Transjordan, Iraq, and Israel become or become more independent, how did the education systems change? And how do teachers who we talked about in the 1920s and 30s, how do they fit into these new and changing systems? Uh, how did the generations of teachers experience these systems differently than their predecessors, for example? Well, the less British, um, the less that like British figures have control over education, the more funding it gets. Um, And also the more standardized. So into the independence area, right? Like teaching becomes a more regular and better qualified profession, but it means that teachers experience a decline in their social and economic status. Um, And it's really, really striking how much more money, both in terms of budget percentage and absolute, like in the absolute amount that gets devoted to schooling as these places get more independence. So right, like in Iraq, after the 1958 revolution, which overthrows the sort of British backed Hashemite monarchy, the like percentage of the budget devoted to schooling goes up to like 25% as opposed to around 6% in the early 1920s when the British were in kind of full control over the schooling. For comparison in Palestine, which has the, as I mentioned, like the most British control over schooling and budget during the mandates, it ranges from like four to 7% of the budget that's devoted to education. So suddenly you get a lot more schools, you get a lot more teachers, and this is going to change the experience of the generation of teachers that becomes a teacher, you know, sort of in the 40s to 50s to 60s. That said, so like what happens to the people who are educators during the 20s and 30s who then are, you know, sort of have been educators for a while, a lot of them actually kind of move into politics 
during the first decades of independence, not really in Israel, though, which I will talk about. Um, so former educators like Fadhil al-Jamali, they reach the highest levels of governance. Um, so even Palestinians, um, like one of the key figures I talk about in my book is this guy, Akram Zuaiter, who is a kind of like teacher nationalist who teaches in Iraq, writes journal articles, leads protests, um, and he gets arrested several times. But he ends up being incorporated into the Jordanian government in the 1960s. And it's really to the extent where like a third of Jordan and Iraq's prime ministers in the early decades of independence worked in public schools as teachers. Now, these politicians fall into two categories. So most of them are kind of part of this sort of old guard of elite families who spent a few years teaching in the best schools of their country and then enter official politics or who worked for a few years teaching when they were kind of on the outs with the government. A few people enter politics after a career in education. I mean, you actually kind of see this most in Jordan, right? Like Jordan ends up, it annexes the West Bank after the War of 1948, um, which is Israel's War of Independence, Palestinians' Nakba. And it's so Jordan has this hugely increased population, this hugely increased Palestinian population, um, which also kind of tends to be sort of better educated than um, <clears throat> the rest of the Jordanian population. And so you see people who had worked as kind of like a secondary school teacher in the Mandate for Palestine, then transitioning into Jordan's bureaucracy and, you know, sort of rising to the level of like minister. Um, now, these ones tend to be more like um, kind of technocrats, right? So basically, like they have like a particular kind of expertise, literacy level of education that allows them to enter the Jordanian government. And right, the Jordanian government also has an interest in incorporating kind of more like symbolic Palestinian educators as well, right? Like Akram Zuaiter was this big, you know, sort of Palestinian anti-imperialist agitator. Putting him in the government is, you know, sort of, I argue it's part of trying to pacify this new Palestinian population, which is not particularly happy with how Jordan's government functioned during 1948. One of, so right, like you have these, you know, sort of like former teachers becoming politicians but they're facing a very different geopolitical situation. So I talked about how in the interwar era, pan-Arabism, right, like all of these kind of political ideologies can be more fluid because usually the people, you know, sort of talking about them aren't having to try to implement them as a state policy. So when you get independence, suddenly pan-Arabism is a state ideology among states which have competing interests, right? Like, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who's in Egypt, doesn't have the same interests as Fadhil al-Jamali in Iraq, right? Like Nasser's pan-Arabism is a more antagonistic relationship to the West in the context of the Cold War. He's seeking nationalization, land reform, gets rid of Egypt's monarchy, and has this, you know, sort of brief actual unification of his government with that of Syria, albeit with sort of Egypt and Nasser at their head. Right, like Jamali, who is in Iraq at this point, he's still pan-Arab, but he doesn't think that Arab unity means rejecting particularly American help or influence. And he ends up, you know, he ends up being replaced, right? Like there's this kind of brief heyday 
And then you have a free officer's revolution in Iraq, which gets rid of right that Hashemite monarchy. And people like Jamali find themselves, um, like Jamali specifically, is first sentenced to death and then is exiled to Tunisia. Now in Jordan, as I mentioned, it's a bit different because you have these people kind of holding on as this kind of way of symbolizing stability in the incorporations of Palestinians into the government. In Israel, it's a very different scenario. So you have very few educated Arab Palestinians that remain in Israel proper after 1948. For those that do, they're under martial law, right? Like they're also living in a state whose ideology, which is Zionism, doesn't really include them, right? Like it's a Jewish state and it doesn't quite know what to do with its population that isn't Jewish and that the population they also just sort of fought a war with. So you don't see like a kind of wave of Palestinian teacher politicians in Israel, right, among the sort of Arab population and like Jewish teachers in the Mandate for Palestine then in the state of Israel tend to have a trajectory that's more sort of like, like more of them tend to be women, they tend to be sort of like less politically powerful, they don't tend in the same numbers to move into politics. So like in my research, I found basically like two Palestinian teacher politicians into the 1950s. Um, and I focus in the book on one, this guy, Rustem Bastuni. And what he tries to do is, you know, so he can't really be pan-Arab in Israel, right? Like Israel hasn't, you know, like there still isn't like peace with the surrounding Arab countries advocating a pan-Arab ideology is one where you're sort of you're going to experience a lot of censure from the Israeli state. So what he tries instead is to emphasize the idea of a state for all its citizens. And he ends up giving up and leaving for the US. Right? So that's kind of that's kind of what happens about this sort of earlier generations of teachers. So for the people who become teachers during kind of the first decades of independence, they tend to be better qualified and more professional, but they face, um, in many ways, more difficult conditions. So in Iraq, mass education coincides with mass protests and teachers' unionization. That said, as you get more and more teachers in Iraq, their salaries actually decrease in real value. Um, and so you see teachers and other civil servants participating in mass protests, particularly as part of the Iraqi Communist Party. And then, right, you end up with this Ba'athist Party revolution in Iraq, which leads to a lot of repression, um, particularly of the, you know, sort of the teachers unions. So basically, teachers go from kind of having this like individual relationship with the government where they're kind of maybe like latent politicians and civil servants, they can negotiate for better conditions to they have worse conditions, they get together into sort of like a mass group to try to get their demands heard. And then they end up being repressed. Um, so in Jordan, um, and in Jordan, I had access to kind of different data than I did in the other countries. And so one of the things you could really see is that teaching becomes a profession. So like in the mandate period, you would see like huge numbers of teachers would only work for like two years as a teacher and then stop or like would work for two years and then come back and work for another three. In the 1950s, this stops, right? Like you have more and more teachers working until they retire. 
they also start complaining much more as a collective about their pay, how often they're paid, and they try to unionize in the 1950s, and their union is shut down after a year, and they're not allowed to reopen it in 2000, until 2012 because the government sees it as basically like a, a political organization rather than just a professional one. Um, now, for Palestinians, right, this kind of decline in teachers' socioeconomic status is similar, especially if they're actually working in, like, Jordan, but often it tends to be more extreme. So Palestinian teachers in refugee camps right after 1948, they tend to work as volunteers or they're paid less than cleaners. So the most these teachers are paid by the 1950s is actually less than teachers received during the mandate period. Palestinian teachers in Israel get half the salary of their Jewish counterparts until 1952 when they protest and they get salaries that are equivalent to those of Jewish teachers. They can join Israel's teachers unions and they have their own division, but they're not allowed to elect the head of their division who has to be Jewish. So basically like they can have kind of a certain degree of professional rep like representation, but there isn't supposed to be anything political about it. Um, and right, as I mentioned, like, all, most of these teachers then tend to have higher degrees, like they tend to actually have like a secondary education or a university education. So they have better credentials than the teachers of the mandate era. On the other hand, right, it means that because tons of people have high school degrees, it isn't a guarantee of a government job anymore. Right. So like there's this um, quote from an educational expert in Jordan who basically says up until 1956, the government could employ every single secondary school graduate. And then because they have this almost doubled population after annexing the West Bank, the government can't. So it means this, you know, sort of high school degree isn't a guarantee of prestige entry into government service. So teachers become more like what we think of today, right? Sort of like overworked, underpaid, not like future politicians. Well, so, I mean, that to me sums up your book very nicely. And I, I found this change, this transition you describe in the experience of teachers very uh, interesting, provocative, I, I thought, and very exciting to read about. So I, I like the book immensely. Uh, I just want to conclude by asking you, uh, with this book done and out, uh, have you turned your attention to new topics or are you taking a rest? Uh, what are you working on these days? Not so much with the rest, um, but, <laughs> oh, well. you know, I'm so I'm actually I'm working on like a political history of standardized testing in Britain's mis Middle Eastern mandates. And this is focusing on like government sponsored exams, um, particularly the most high stakes ones which are like the ones that take place at the end of high school and kind of determine, right, like not just if somebody can go to a university, but like what university they can go to, what they major in. Um, so, right, like it's kind of looking at the baccalaureate or Thanuya Amma in Iraq and then the like um, Bagrut and um, also Taujihi in like Jordan and for Palestinians. So one of the things I found in my first book is that standardized testing is actually kind of the one of the most enduring legacies of education during the mandate era, right? Like these tests become this kind of like life defining experience. And 
in this project, though, I'm less interested in whether or not, you know, sort of standardized testing is like good or bad, but more about the politics of its origins and spread. Right. So like how can tests be used to sort different populations? Why are they valuable even to people who see the government implementing them as oppressive? And also like why are they, you know, sort of so sticky? Right. Like they outlast regimes, natural disasters, wars, et cetera. Um, and part of my early argument is that, you know, sort of standardized testing, a large part of why it becomes appealing is, you know, sort of partially the practical fact that succeeding on this exam did give people, you know, chance at, you know, sort of like a better economic and social life. But also, um, to a certain degree, like standards are appealing, right? Like there's this idea that you could compete with colonizers or make claims by holding colonial governments to their own standards. And this is pretty powerful. So like one of the, one of the sort of like early chapters of this book that I've been writing is looking at kind of like the growth of this idea of standards in the mandates. And, you know, I have this one guy who's writing to kind of like British officials at Oxford and he says basically like, you know, so yes, like I did really well on this exam that you guys started grading. Am I as good as a European or not? Um, and these exams are kind of a way of sort of trying to prove parity between, between different groups. Um, a side thing I'm looking at on it as well is kind of the relationship between like religion and standardized testing. So like when do countries choose to have religion as a test subject? What does this do for how religion is taught? Um, so one of the things I also found, right, is like the Tanakh is a subject on Israel's Bagrut exam whether or not you're Jewish, right? So you're having to learn like Jewish scripture, even if you're not. Whereas in Jordan, like Christian students, right? Like there's like, Jordan has like a sort of, you know, a substantial Christian minority. They could test, take a test in agriculture instead of Muslim religion. Um, so that's kind of what I'm following. I'm also working on like a kind of spinoff article that talks about the first generation of women in the Arab world to get PhDs in part because a lot of them go to teach in Iraq during the 30s. And I'm kind of trying to talk about how they represent a particular type of feminine modernity that's tied to both education and travel. So I'm really excited about these about these projects. That's real. I mean, those sound very interesting, I mean, especially, you know, I think about Turkey, which is my area of expertise. And just the way in which standardized testing structures people's entire lives, even now. I mean, it's just a book on that for Turkey, for the for other Middle Eastern countries would be wonderful, as would the article you're working on as well. So that's great. And uh, I, I, I wish you the best on it. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. 